You're listening to the highlights from an episode of The Creative Process. To listen to the full interview or hear more about The Creative Process projects, please visit www.creativeprocess.info. Thank you. Yes, that's. Mm-hmm. I wrote one short piece for the Guardian about that uh, conference, which was very path-breaking, and uh, I've gotten to know some of the people in the Parti des Indigènes and um, understand what their agenda is a bit, and so that will be integrated into my book. Essentially, I'm taking a lot of my blogs and expanding them into longer pieces and putting them together and synthesizing a lot of those ideas. And I also, as you know, um, participated in the um, day-long conference on the Rohingya uh, crisis in Burma. Um, and that was held at the National Assembly. And uh, it was really a very interesting um, set of participants even, uh, uh, from the uh, Nobel Prize winner, um, the Peace Award um, from um, Iran, uh, Shireen Abadi, to the president of the Bangladeshi parliament, to uh, NGOs, workers, um, and journalists and scholars. It's a very, very uh, terrible case of the genocide in Burma. And again, it was interesting to see an amalgam of people, not just intellectuals, not just diplomats, not just NGO workers, but a whole set of people coming together from different walks of life to try to address this problem. And um, that's something I'm trying to do, again, in my own work is to make contact with people from different walks of life to see what kind of language, what kinds of concerns uh, they're interested in, and so I could match my interests with them. Um, And I was thinking of some of the the, uh, questions that you raised for me to think about, which are on my mind already, as you know. And, you know, at the Arab Institute here in Paris, I took my class to a really interesting exhibit. It was uh, the second time this has been put on. And the idea is to imagine what a national museum of Palestine would look like. And I think it was a couple of years ago, they did one installation, and they brought wonderful Palestinian art out, and they exhibited it. And then they, of course, it was a, um, a mo- uh, temporary exhibit, and they took it down, and they came back this year and did a whole other set of artworks. And uh, when I took my class through it, there were some obvious uh, paintings and photographs, especially there was some journalistic work that really had a very strong political content. And then there were some that were um, what might call one might call just universal artworks. And I asked my class, why do you think they combine those things? And I got my class to think about how we tend to uh, reduce people to one cause or one symbol or one thing. And that certainly the Palestinians are, are uh, in a terrible political and huma- uh, terrible humanitarian situation as well. But yet precisely their humanity shows through in the artworks that are speaking in a um, more abstract way just to the fact that what are we struggling for? We're struggling to recognize them as human beings, not just as causes. More than just the sum of their struggles. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's precisely it. 
And I was thinking of uh, a line from uh, Mahmoud Darwish, one of the, the greatest poets, and he said something along the lines of, uh, I'm paraphrasing this, that, you know, we don't have a homeland, but I hope that my poems can create a space to imagine a homeland. And, and that's really the key to, to what I'm trying to do in this book, is trying to imagine different ways of understanding political meaning uh, so that we're not simply tied to political parties and elections and, and statistics and polls, but trying to um, become sensitive to the ways that the imagination gives us fertile ground to think of politics and just simply socially being together in unconventional ways. Uh, that, that might translate into action in different ways. Yeah. And what do you feel are your ethical responsibilities as a teacher? Well, I think there are two. One is to, well, there are several, but <laughs> one of the main ones is to not tell people what to think or say that one way of thinking is correct, but to have them discover it on their own. In other words, give them a set of options. I think that especially in American universities, um, which are becoming more and more like pre-professional schools. Um, Very much efficient. Yeah, yeah, and so the students come in already knowing what they want to do. And so they've already excluded and uh, taken out of consideration all sorts of options, uh, which is exactly the opposite of what a university is supposed to, it's supposed to give you a broad set of of possible ways of, of thinking about life and training your mind and your talents. And so I like to open that up more for students. And so I will present um, um, a political or historical case and say, well, let's, let's try to re-describe it in different ways. Uh, let's try to understand how it's been presented to us. And without setting that aside as being false, examine the foundations of that truth and imagine other possibilities. I think that's the first step um, for any kind of ethical consideration is to understand that, uh, that truth is um, an assertion and to try to test the viability of that assertion and the conditions that that assertion is made upon. And again, that's why, where art comes in as, as being extremely useful is because it shows in a different medium how uh, the world might appear. Uh, so I think that's the first thing that I think about in terms of an ethical presentation and uh, a responsibility in the classroom. And also the other thing that I think is really important is to listen because it's easy just to profess. Mm -hmm. And you know, professors love to hear their own voices and they have a captive audience. Uh, so it's very easy to get to fall in love with the sound of your own voice, and often students um, become um, complicit in that because they it's easier for them to be passive mm -hmm. and not active. And so I I like teaching smaller classes. I like to have students um, uh, discuss things with me and with each other. And so I think that's really important is to. Um, to listen to what students are saying. I mean, that's the reason I went into education, was to have conversations. I often tell my students when they say, well, you know, they're not sure what kind of job they want, and I say to them often enough, think of the kinds of conversations that you like to have. What kinds of things would you like to put your energy behind, whether it's inventing something or thinking about 
uh, wise investments, uh, whatever. You know, you're somehow going to be spending at least eight hours of your life, five days a week in the United States, talking about certain things, and it should bear some connection with things that you think are important. Yes, and it's also interesting because a part of your teaching, I don't know if it's an active part of your teaching or something you did beside this, is um, bringing students into the community space by bringing them into right. uh, galleries. And yeah, things. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we have in the United States this thing called um, community-based learning. And it's the idea that um, you could take a class for credit and you spend half the time in the classroom and you spend the second half of the time uh, working with the community organization. And the, the idea is not to bring the knowledge from the university into these community organizations, which might have to do with healthcare, education, um, uh, the arts, but rather it's a um, two-way learning process in which you understand the work of the organization, uh, their challenges, their rewards, and you uh, collaborate with them on a project that once the relationship is, is ended after the end of the class, formally, that it can be sustained. So there's a very interesting um, method called the $100 project, which is that you give, because especially at places like Stanford, students are used to having tremendous financial resources. So the first inclination, often enough for charities or any kind of you know, work like this, is to go in and throw a bunch of money at it. And so we only give the students $100, which is, which is not even uh, 100 euro. And, um, they have to invent a project that can then uh, be implanted or embedded in the organization and self-sustaining. So the $100 is just to get things going. Uh, so I think that helps us understand how, how the human imagination and the human mind, uh, given lack of material resources, Want to get involved with exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.